the headlines tonight. Princeton fallen to Americans. Yankees pitched into the hands of capitalists. And Pope expels reformer Martin Luther. Plus, coming up, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's God! Those are the headlines, now leave me alone. News Bang. The news for the people, by the people, and of the people. 1777. Today, in 1776, the American Revolutionary War erupted like a 4th of July firework display gone wrong. General George Washington, a man so founding he had it in his name, led the charge against the British. The war raged on for eight long years, or as they called it then, a decade. The conflict was fought on land, sea and Caribbean holidays. The Battle of Princeton was a turning point. Outnumbered five to one, Washington's men were as drunk as Lord Nelson's socks when they charged the British lines. One eyewitness, Pete Lucky Shot, said, I thought we were done for until George himself rode up on his horse and yelled, Give me liberty or give me some more rum. The battle lasted nine hours or until tea time when both sides agreed to call it a draw and have cake. The victory at Princeton boosted morale among the colonists and eventually led to the Treaty of Paris in 1780-something, which recognised America's independence, provided they kept their loud music down after midnight. Amerikut. 1973. CBS has announced the sale of the New York Yankees to a group of investors led by one George Steinbrenner. The deal, worth more than a trillion peanuts and a signed Babe Ruth jersey, has sent shockwaves through the baseball community. Steinbrenberger, known for his love of long walks on the pitch and alienating star players, is set to become the longest-serving owner in Yankees history. Baseball insiders are already speculating that this could be the start of something magical for the team. With Georgie Boy at the helm, said one unnamed source, we're looking at multiple championships and maybe even a few World Series rings, or at least an IKEA bookcase shaped like one. The news has been met with mixed reactions from fans. Some are optimistic about the future, while others fear that Steinbrenner's notorious temperament might lead to him eating umpires alive during home games. Only time will tell if this is a home run or just another foul ball for America's favourite pastime. 1521. In a move that rocked the very foundations of the Catholic Church, Pope Leo VI has excommunicated German sausage lover Martin Luther for refusing to retract his 95 thighs. The papal bull, Deset Romanum Pontificem was issued today in 1521 AD, which is rather specific if you ask me. Luther, a known heretic and lover of long walks in the Reformation, sparked controversy with his 95 thighs, a scathing attack on the church's corruption and sale of indulgences, a type of early Tudor biscuit. One bystander, Hans Solo from Wittenberg, said, Ich bin einverstanden mit Herr Luther. Die Kirche ist eine Riesendrose. Translated as, I agree with Mr. Luther, the church is a big donkey. The Vatican has yet to comment on these baseless allegations, but insiders say they're fuming madder than a bull in... Well, you get the idea. Newsbang. Biting the hand that feeds it, but only if it's a lie. Presenting the chilly forecast, Shakanaka Giles. With a weather report that's colder than your ex's heart, 
Expect bone-chilling temperatures, moody skies, and relentless rain. Tomorrow's weather forecast predicts a chilly day, just like your ex's heart. Temperatures will drop to a bone-chilling 2 degrees Celsius, so don't forget to wrap up like a mummy if you're heading out. In the southeast, there'll be a mix of uh, sunshine and showers, a bit like a broken relationship, sometimes bright, sometimes gloomy. For the Midlands, it's going to be a cloudy day, as if the sky is reflecting your mood after binge-watching sad movies. The north of England and Scotland will experience heavy rain, about as relentless as your mother-in-law's advice. In summary then, prepare for a frosty day with a side of moody skies and wet pavements, and that's all the weather. Israeli forces have seized the MV Kareen A, discovering a clandestine cargo of 50 tons of weaponry intended for the Palestinian National Authority. Operation Noah's Ark has unveiled the shadowy role of transnational criminal organizations in arms trafficking. Meanwhile, the Palestinian Authority, or State of Palestine, maintains partial civil control over specific regions in the West Bank. Now, to shed more light on this unfolding saga, we turn to our correspondent, Brian Bastable, who's been keeping a close eye on the situation. This is my war, the war that makes no sense. I'm here on the deck of the MV Kareen A. I've been up all night with the crew, waiting for the moment when we're surrounded by Israeli forces. It's now I can see them. They're on the horizon. The sound of their engines fills the air. I'm looking down at the cargo, 50 tons of smuggled weapons. This is the heart of the conflict. The Israeli forces are closing in. They're calling for us to surrender, but we won't. We can't. The air is thick with tension. The crew is ready. We're ready. The Israeli forces are almost upon us. They're boarding the ship. It's now. The moment of truth. The moment when the world changes. This is the climax, folks. The climax of our time in the cinema of war. Brian Bastable, news bang somewhere in the depths of hell. Edeen. 1911. The clamour of 1911 London's East End reverberates through history as a jewellery heist spirals into a gunfight, leaving two souls adrift and a political tempest in its wake. Winston Churchill, the Home Secretary, found himself in the eye of the storm, facing a torrent of criticism for his actions. As the smoke clears, we turn to Ken Shit for a deeper dive into the controversy that engulfed Churchill and the East End of London, a district whose very essence defies precise definition. Tonight, we journey back to a time when the East End of London was a cesspool of crime and corruption, a time when Winston Churchill, the bloody pompous prick, was Home Secretary. It all started with a goddamn jewellery heist. 
the audacity of which would make even the most hardened criminal blush. But this wasn't just any old robbery. No siri. This was the mother of all jewellery jobs, and it set off a chain reaction that would end in bloodshed and political controversy. The thieves were cornered in Sydney Street, and what followed was a gun battle so intense that it could have been straight out of a Hollywood movie. Two men lost their lives in that bloody melee, innocent victims caught up in the crossfire between the criminals and the police. And who should be at the centre of this debacle but our old friend Winston Churchill? The man who would one day lead Britain to victory in World War II was then just a fledgling politician trying to make his mark. But his involvement in this fiasco would come back to haunt him. Churchill was criticised left, right and centre for his handling of the situation. Some said he had acted recklessly, others accused him of using excessive force. But whatever your opinion on Churchill's actions that day, one thing is clear. This was not his finest hour. So there you have it, folks. Another chapter in the sordid history of London's East End. A tale of crime, corruption and political controversy that serves as a stark reminder of just how far we've come since those dark days. Ken Shit, signing off for now. Mm, 1976. The International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights has been signed by 171 nations pledging to uphold the rights of their citizens. The treaty, a cornerstone of the International Bill of Human Rights, includes the right to health, education and an adequate standard of living. The United States, however, remains one of the four countries yet to ratify the covenant. Joining me now to discuss the implications of this treaty is our Hardiman Pesto. Good evening, Martin. I'm here with Dr. Sylvia Trenchcoat, renowned historian and international law expert. She's going to help us understand the significance of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Sylvia, welcome to Newsbang. Good evening, Pesto. Good evening, Dr. Trenchcoat. Can you tell us what this covenant is all about? Certainly, Martin. The International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is a multilateral treaty that aims to promote and protect economic, social and cultural rights. It includes rights such as the right to work, the right to health, the right to education and the right to an adequate standard of living. And how does it differ from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a broader document that covers all human rights, including civil and political rights. The International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights focuses specifically on economic, social and cultural rights. And how many countries have ratified this covenant? 171 countries have ratified the covenant. However, there are four countries, including the United States, that have signed but not ratified it. Interesting. So what happens if a country signs but doesn't ratify the covenant? When a country signs a treaty, it indicates that it agrees with the principles of the treaty. However, ratification is a more formal process that involves implementing the treaty into domestic law. By not ratifying the covenant, these countries are essentially saying that they agree with its principles but haven't taken the necessary steps to implement them. And why do you think the United States hasn't ratified it? There could be various reasons. Some argue that it's due to concerns about potential conflicts with domestic laws or policies. Others suggest that it's because of political or ideological differences. 
So is there any hope for the United States to ratify the covenant in the future? It's possible, but it would require significant political will and public support. Thank you, Dr. Trenchcoat. That was enlightening. Indeed, Martin. Back to you in the studio. Thanks, Pesto. You've been listening to Dr. Sylvia Trenchcoat on the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. We'll be right back after this. News Bang. A dose of reality in the arm of the people. On the roads today, elephants, UFOs and even a walking skyscraper are causing quite the stir. Polly Beep has the latest on these bizarre traffic jams and a few tips to keep you safe and entertained during your journey. Well, the roads are looking like a zoo today. On the A12, we've got a herd of elephants blocking the path. It's a scene straight out of The Lion King. Remember, if you see a herd of elephants on the road, you should stop. Put on your hazard lights and patiently wait for the parade to pass. On the M40, it's a different kind of traffic jam. You might want to grab your sunglasses because a fleet of UFOs have decided to join the rush hour. The aliens are just cruising along, checking out our human ways. Just remember, they're friendly, so don't honk at them. And in the year 1961, Aero Flight 311 crashed in Kvevlax, Finland, killing all 25 people on board. The investigation revealed that both pilots were intoxicated. Kvevlax is a church village with various amenities. Now, if you're on the M25, you might want to avoid the area near the Gherkin. It seems the building has grown a few extra legs and is taking a stroll. Police are advising drivers to stay calm and keep their distance. In other news, the M6 has turned into a giant game of Twister. With one wrong move, you might find yourself on the ceiling, so be careful out there. And remember, if you see a giant game of Twister on the road, just stay in your lane. And for our final piece of news, a friendly reminder that the A1 is now home to a herd of velociraptors. They're moving at a steady pace, so no need to panic. Just keep your eyes peeled and your hands on the wheel. This is Polly Beep, wishing you a safe and entertaining journey wherever the road may take you. The day 1888. Calamity Prenderville, the stargazing correspondent for Newsbang, takes us on a journey back to 1888, exploring the marvels of the Lick Observatory and its record-breaking telescope. And now it's time for a blast from the past. Let's journey back to the year of 1888, when the Lick Observatory near San Jose, California, was the talk of the town. No, not the San Jose we know today, but a quaint little village, home to the world's largest refracting telescope, the James Lick Telescope, or Great Lick Refractor. It was so big, it had its own postcode. Now, you might be thinking, what's so special about a big telescope? Well, let me tell you, this wasn't just any telescope. It had a lens diameter of 36 inches, which is nearly as tall as your average 1980s British pop star. The Lick Observatory was the pride and joy of the University of California, who managed it with the precision of a Swiss watch. The observatory was located on Mount Hamilton, which was as remote as a British village in the 1980s, with only the stars for company. So, 
When did this marvel of British innovation first see the light of day? Well, that's what we call first light in astronomy. It's the first use of a telescope to capture an astronomical image after its construction. And let me tell you, when the Great Lick Refractor first saw the stars, it was a sight to behold. So there you have it, folks, a little slice of British innovation from the year 1888. Who knows what other marvels the future holds? This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbank signing off. Newsbang, cutting through the fog of disinformation with a chainsaw of fact. And in 1973, George Steinbrenner, a man who would become synonymous with the New York Yankees, made his grand entrance onto the stage. CBS sold the team to a consortium led by Steinbrenner, marking the beginning of a remarkable era. Little did they know, this decision would pave the way for a dynasty that would capture the hearts of millions and redefine the sport. Now to delve into the intricacies of this monumental transaction, we turn to our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway. The stock market fluctuates wildly today. Dogger, slight or moderate, CBS announced the sale of the New York Yankees baseball team to a group of investors led by George Steinbrenner. Yankees stocks are up 618 million, point twenty point two hundred and eighty eight point four. 21306. Lundy, Southeast becoming cyclonic. Steinbrenner's takeover was met with mixed reactions, with some fans excited about the new ownership, while others worried about the future of the team. Thames, fair. In 2009, Bitcoin was created by Satoshi Nakamoto, a mysterious figure whose true identity remains unknown. It operates on a peer to peer network and uses cryptography to verify transactions recorded in a public distributed ledger called a blockchain. This eliminates the need for traditional intermediaries like banks. Nakamoto also developed the first blockchain database, Bitcoin, currently trading at 3.79 against the German Bordello, that's up 0.5. Cromarty, occasionally rough. The American health charity March of Dimes was founded in 1938, to raise money for polio research. Polio is an infectious disease caused by the polio virus, with symptoms ranging from mild to severe, including permanent paralysis. The organization now focuses on improving the health of mothers and babies. Fastnet, good, becoming poor. The charity has made significant strides in preventing birth defects and premature birth, with the help of the March of Dimes. That's the business. Seventeen forty nine. A toast to Berlingske, Denmark's esteemed newspaper, which first graced the world with its presence in the bygone year of seventeen forty nine. A chronicle of record for the nation, it stands tall amongst the oldest publications in the world, whispering tales of yore and guiding the present with its sagely gaze. Now let us welcome Smithsonian Moss, who has been investigating the secret life of this illustrious broadsheet. Waho! Y'all ready for some old-timey news, babes? Like, way back in the day when people wore wigs and powdered their faces, and newspapers were like the only way to get your daily dose of gossip and scandal? Yeah, 
we're going back in time, all the way to 1749 when Berlingske, Denmark's oldest newspaper, first hit the streets. Now, I know what you're thinking. Smithsonian, why are we talking about a newspaper from the 18th century? Isn't that a bit... antiquated? Well, my dear friends, let me tell you, this ain't your grandma's newspaper. Berlingske is like the OG of news, y'all. It's been around for over two and a half centuries, and it's still going strong. So, what was the world like back in 1749? Let me paint you a picture. Wigs were all the rage, and people were wearing them so high they could barely see where they were going. The French were still trying to conquer Europe, and the American colonies were just getting started. And of course, Berlingske was there to cover it all. Now I know what you're thinking. Smithsonian, what kind of scandals and gossip were they covering back then? Well, my monsters, let me tell you, it was wild. They had everything from royal affairs to witch hunts, and they didn't hold back. Berlingski was like the National Enquirer of the 18th century. Y'all. But here's the thing. Back then, they didn't have the luxury of colorful headlines and flashy graphics. No, sir. They had to rely on their words to grab people's attention. And let me tell you, they knew how to write a headline. They were like the masters of clickbait before clickbait was even a thing. So, what's the takeaway from all of this, you ask? Well, my dear friends, it's this. Even though the world has changed a lot since 1749, some things never go out of style, like Berlingske, for example. It's still going strong, still bringing us the news, still making us laugh and gasp in equal measure. And that, my friends is the true power of journalism. So, here's to Berlingske, the oldest newspaper in Denmark, and to the journalists who have been keeping us informed for over two and a half centuries. Cheers to you, and may you continue to bring us the news, no matter how wild and crazy it gets. That's all for now, folks. Tune in next time for more culture updates, and don't forget to subscribe to Berlingske for all the latest news, both grave and trivial. Waho! News bang. The truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. 1521. Pope Leo X has excommunicated German theologian Martin Luther, plunging the religious landscape into turmoil. Luther's 95 theses, penned in 1517, sparked the Protestant Reformation, challenging the Roman Catholic Church's corruption and indulgence sales. For more on this unfolding saga, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. The Reverend Kevin Monstrance here, coming to you live from the Newsbang studio on this chilly January evening. Brrr! Feels like my Aunt Brenda's icy glare out there tonight. The one she'd give me as a boy when I accidentally put sherbet in the communion wine. Oh, you rascals never pulled such stunts at Sunday school. <laughs> Consider yourselves lucky you didn't grow up with my mate Clive Calamabi. Calamity Jones. Why that scallywag could cause more chaos with a hymn book and a bottle of glue than a fox in a hen house. And don't even get me started on the great hymn sheet hostage crisis of 79. <laughs> but I digress. I'm here tonight to regale you with a tale of religious rebellion from the 16th century. The year was 1521, and our setting is Germany, home of one Martin Luther. 
a monk and scholar with some strong opinions on the Catholic Church. Now, the head honcho of the church at the time was Pope Leo X, who didn't take kindly to Luther's criticisms. <laughs> Things came to a head when Leo told Luther to take back all his complaining about church corruption and the sale of indulgences. But Luther refused to back down. Can you imagine? So Pope Leo gave Luther the old heave-ho and excommunicated the cheeky monk. <laughs> this kicked off what came to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Talk about a religious rebellion. Luther went on to start the new Lutheran branch of Christianity, which was a bit less about pomp and ceremony and more about connecting with God directly. Well, it rattled some religious cages at the time, I'll tell you. <laughs> Almost as much as my mate Davy Disco Inferno Mills rattled the nuns when he snuck a mirror ball and turntable into the chapel. You've never seen such a frenzy of habit-clad ladies getting down to cool and the gang. But back to Luther, his break from the Catholic Church shows what can happen when one person stands up for their beliefs, no matter the opposition. It reminds me of a joke about another revolutionary cleric, the radical Reverend Ricky Che Charlton. The story goes that Reverend Ricky printed up T-shirts saying, Down with the Archbishop, and handed them out one Sunday. <laughs> the angry Archbishop called him in, demanding he retract such heresy but Reverend Ricky refused, instead printing more shirts, saying, Down with the Archbishop, please. Moral of the story, a true revolutionary can't resist a good slogan, even facing excommunication. Words to live by, my friends. Good night and God bless. And now for the final roundup. The Times, Chinese and North Koreans take Seoul. The Telegraph, Nancy Pelosi makes history as speaker. The Mail, sex pistols sacked by EMI. And finally, The Sun, hairdresser sells dog for a fiver. That's it. On the day that a man who'd been stabbed to death in a brawl in a car park was taken to hospital by his friends. They thought he was only unconscious. Goodbye from me, and I hope we meet again soon. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>